you really need a product that you're so passionate about or so much fun for you that even during that, those ups and those downs, it's, it's just the kind of thing that you want to be building that whole time. Hello, listeners. This is Andy Steves back with the Andy Steves Travel Podcast. Today, we're shifting gears into entrepreneurship, and I'm having a fun chat with serial inventor and fellow Notre Dame grad, Will McLeod. Will's been on ABC's hit show, Shark Tank, where he landed a huge deal with Robert Herjavec. What I'm really fascinated by is the compliance that's going to happen in this industry. It's going to be driven by the insurance companies for smarter homes. And I think that's going to take all of this to another level. We agree. You got to drive it, baby. You got to go. $750,000 for 13%. We'd love to accept your offer, Robert. What is that? Good deal. Uh. He was also named one of Forbes 30 Under 30 for 2016, and he's won more than 10 business plan competitions, taking over $2 million in startup prizes and funding. So he's been a busy guy since we graduated a few years ago. He focuses on smart devices, a very timely subject for 2017, as smart tech seems to be infiltrating just about every aspect of our lives these days. We discuss some of the highs and lows of entrepreneurship, some of the things to watch for when taking a business concept all the way to production, how to pursue funding, and we share some tips on hiring the right team to execute on your ideas. Before we get started, here's this week's edition of our segment, Ask Andy, where I answer and discuss listeners' burning travel questions. Thank you so much for sending these in. Keep submitting any questions you may have to andysteves.com slash podcast or through my Facebook page. This week's travel question is from Elizabeth, a college academic advisor in Berkeley, California. Elizabeth wants to know, what is some advice for first-time travelers wishing to make the most of their experience? Is it more important to have a fun time or a culturally enriching one? Not that the two are mutually exclusive or anything, but what's more important? For me, I always try to relax and understand that I'll never see all there is to see in Paris or do all there is to do in Dublin on a first visit there. So I'm always promising myself and of course giving me an excuse to come back another time. I'm always trying to be selfish. I try to focus on what turns me on the most, whether it's architecture or art or nightlife, hiking or otherwise. When I use my personal interest to build my itinerary around, I always find that to be more rewarding and I integrate better into the local cultures that I'm visiting. When you're engaged, you learn more. And that happens when you put yourself into those situations that you really enjoy, rather than forcing yourself to follow or pursue some sort of cultural enrichment. You'll spend a lot of time on things that other people might find interesting, but not necessarily yourself. And the cool thing is, when you go after what gets you excited, you find yourself among people who share that same interest. And from there, you can really bridge some cultural gaps and make personal connections. For example, I was just in Berlin, and they've even added Berghain, that's the notorious and famous disco club, to the list of cultural heritage sites, if you can believe it. That puts it up on the same level as Checkpoint Charlie and Germany's parliament building. So Berghain today, with its raging techno and the long line out front and the really picky bouncer who decides who gets to come in and who he's going to send away, is on the same level as Mozart in terms of German history and culture. And just because it's happening today doesn't mean that it's any less culturally relevant. I think in a lot of ways it's more culturally relevant. So I would definitely encourage you to also not write off things that are going on today because cities like London, Amsterdam, Paris, Rome, even though 
though we see them in a bit of a time capsule in relation to how things are back in the States where everything is new, when we go to these cities, we got to remember that these are living, ever-evolving cities, and it's up to us to really plug in and enjoy what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis. Thanks for the question, Elizabeth. I hope that gives you and other listeners some inspiration as you sketch out your travel plans. As always, sending questions to Facebook or andysteves.com. Now, let's get back to the show. And just a heads up, Will and I geek out a little bit about his inventions and his projects, and then we get into Shark Tank later on in the show, so be sure to stick around. I think you'll really like it, and happy travels. Sharing tips, tricks, and tales from around the globe, this is Travel for the Next Generation. You're listening to the Andy Steves Travel Podcast. Episode number nine. All right, this is Andy Steves with the Andy Steves Travel Podcast. Today, I have fellow Notre Dame grad and serial entrepreneur on the phone, Will McLeod. He has absolutely laden with all sorts of recognition, the most recent of which he just snuck in on the Forbes 30 Under 30 Award. He's uh, won all sorts of business plan competitions and filed numerous patents. Will McLeod, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to have you on the show. <laughs> Thanks for the kind words. That was a great introduction. Um, when we were undergrads sharing a classroom together back at Notre Dame in, in Indiana, I always remembered you always having other stuff going on. Like I was just concentrating on drawing my next car or my next uh, motorcycle or whatever. But you were going back and forth between product design class. That's where we overlapped. And your mechanical engineering classes, I think. How did you balance those two uh, course loads in, in, in a way that didn't make you go crazy? Uh, poorly. <laughs> so it, it uh, was a lot of work. I think I ended up leaving Notre Dame all in with over 200 credits. But um, I, I think there's a lot that mechanical engineering, which is the study of uh, the how you build things and product design, which is a little bit more the study of what to build or why uh, that go well together. Um, I, I kind of had the two feet off of each other. And I really liked the feeling of ownership of the entire design of a product around how it looks, how it feels, how a user would use it, and how you're going to implement it. I think in uh, in industrial design, they really hammer at home. It's all about finding the, the balance between form and function. You don't want it to be so pretty that it really sacrifices a lot of function. I'm sure we can all name a few examples where, of something that looks so cool, but man, it just it's not very practical. And the opposite, something that works really well, but it just isn't pleasant to have around you. Like a super fast sports car might only have one or two seats, right? But so it's not all that usable, but man, it's uh, it looks good and it's fast. <laughs> I, my, my favorite is, um, if, if your listeners want to Google it really quick, um, Philippe Stark has a beautifully designed juicer that he made for Alessi. This gorgeous steel, looks like a spaceship that landed and it has this elegant pointed um, receiver. So you juice an orange or a lemon on top and it runs down the sides and drips into a cup. And the bottom that it drips into is maybe an inch or two off of your cap. So you'd really need to be making basically an espresso cup worth of lemon. And it's a terrible design. And he's been asked about it. And he says, no, no, no. The point is that it looks like a juicer. And it's gorgeous. <laughs> it's just very silly, really. And I know exactly the one you're talking about. I, but I've never actually interacted with it. So it does have some trouble um, functionality-wise. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's, there's there's a whole world of designed objects that are, are meant to be almost frustrating to use to the point of where they're making a point about form and function. But I like to keep things as practical as possible while still evoking uh, some of the affordance of what they're for. 
Well, I like to think of you as existing in that intersection of good taste, uh, you know, where that where the balance meets. And <laughs> you've good. been able to turn that into some really smart business ideas. You developed your ideas in the business plan competition, if I remember correctly. And then you hit the real world. Um, yeah. Tell me about how you came up with some of these business ideas and how you took them from concept into uh, into reality. Sure. I, th I think like a lot of people who are product designers today, um, around our ages, I saw the IDEO shopping cart video on, uh, I think ABC Nightline and, um, just was inspired by how much you could do not with just technology, but rethinking how people interact with, uh, the devices around them. We didn't know much about the business world or the world of startups or, or, or things like that. I, I kind of wanted to be an inventor. Um, but I didn't realize how much of that is getting beyond simply having an idea for a product and really figuring out all the rest of it, of building the product, building a team, building a company, being an entrepreneur. Um, and a friend of mine um, who's also at Notre Dame saw some of the stuff I was messing around with just like after class and said, oh, you really ought to bring that over to the business school and try out this McCloskey business plan competition, which you also did quite well in, Andy, I remember the next year. And uh, it through that exercise of taking a concept for a product that I had and fleshing out, okay, well, who's really going to buy this? How are you going to make it? What's the use case? I realized that design uh, and, and even the engineering together are, are maybe 10% of a successful product. And, and there's marketing and the team that you build and the strategy. So that, that process was a very long one for me of, of trial and error and learning. That first product, the first business plan competition product was a uh, piece of smart glass, which is a technology that lets you... Uh, take a window and instead of having blinds or shades on it, flip a switch and the window itself actually tints from clear to dark um, and, and built that in a very like low tech um, approach and spent the next, oh, I don't know, almost seven years going through the exercises of learning how to build a team around that, you know, a worldwide search for a supply chain and getting grants from the National Science Foundation to develop the technology and building a team together. And it was a big, long journey to do that. You, you, you kind of have to realize early on, you really need a product that you're so passionate about or so much fun for you that even during that, those ups and those downs, it's, it's just the kind of thing that you want to be building that whole time. You make a really good point, and I definitely agree. Uh, business plans provide an excellent opportunity to really flesh out any business idea that you might have. Uh, to be honest, like in 2009, I entered the business plan competition. The first year, I just gave it my best shot, only made it into the semifinals or something like mm -hmm. that. But at least I had a whole bunch of feedback from smart judges who said, okay, here are the holes in your business plan. Um, and then I spent the next year really plugging those holes because at this point I was like, okay, I'm going to give weekend student adventures, the, the concept for my business, um, a shot because I don't really have any, anything else exciting going on. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to see if I can make something of this idea and business plan competitions, even though they're intense, they're a lot of pressure. They take up a lot of time, give you an incredible chance to really vet your idea and, and collect all this smart feedback. Now you won uh, the first time you went through, right? So hopefully, Hopefully it gave you a chance to really think through a lot of issues uh, to take your, again, your glass, uh, your smart glass from just a concept to production. We, we did uh, end up winning the, the, the competition. We were, the, I think, the first undergrad led team to do that. But it, it, we certainly didn't breeze through it without any uh, feedback and trial and error. Uh, what you were saying about the mentorship and the judges was definitely a big part of it. Um, I think one of the things that our mentor said about us that I, uh, looking at it with the benefit of hindsight and distance now I can say was so helpful was that we 
really went out of our way to find advice from people who knew what they were doing. So anybody who is young and has an idea for a business, um, I would say get ready for a lot of listening and learning. Um, it, it, I think the people who do best when they jump into entrepreneurship or in general something new are people who are not already in love with their own concept, people who are in love with a problem or people who are in love with a market. Um, they can listen to those people and get feedback, get out and test their ideas and from people in the market, from people who have started companies already, people with battle scars who've been out there and learn over and over and over again. And I think part of the reason that the, the first company took so long was we had so much learning to do. Um, but that's one of the things that was great yeah. about in particular Notre Dame's uh, business plan competition is how much mentorship they had. And we spent the next year mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, absolutely. touring around. We, we did a whole calendar of year of maybe a dozen business plan competitions over the next year at different places like Rice and Mass Challenge. And it was... You know, you learn very fast from that. It, it's a little bit academic, but at the same time, for somebody coming out of school, somebody who's young and doing this for the first time, it's a great environment to step into the real world of, of business. You make a really good point there. You got to be in love not with your product, but with the problem or the market, because the product is definitely the newcomer, and that's what needs to evolve and change and improve in order to solve the problem. But if you come in really committed to how your first edition or first kind of draft fixes the problem, you're going to be bashing your head against the wall constantly. That, that's a really good point. Absolutely. Our, our first concept for how to make smart glass work didn't work for a number of reasons, and the least of which was technologically. I, I wish I'd kept better track of what they were, but I, it was wildly different by the time we ended up with it. And the concept's the same because we did launch the company based on the problem we wanted to solve. And even that idea of the solution, right, the problem wasn't we need better control over lighting in, in buildings. It was, I think glass that can go dark on command is cool. How do we make it work? Um, but what kind of solution the market needed, we didn't know yet. We need to learn over time. So it, it really has a lot more to do with not falling in love with a solution or a cool invention and, and more to do with learning. <laughs> Being that loops. sponge, right? Absolutely. One more question, and then we'll get out of the geek phase here, the geek talk. But um, those prescription glasses that people wear and they go outside and they turn dark, that's that's old news. I mean, that, I feel like that's been around forever. Were you just coming up with new ways and new markets to, to go after? What was it that got uh, your customers excited? Um, I would say it's cost and control. So there's a number of ways of making glass uh, tint on command. Transitions lenses like you're talking about based on um, photo response where you'd walk outside and it would darken in light um, versus our glass, which you could control. And in fact, it was mechanical. You could slide something uh, like you would blinds and the glass itself would get darker and darker until it was really quite opaque, uh, like 99.9% .9 light cut. Wow. But really our um, target was that our glass was maybe a third the cost of those other competing technologies and a lot simpler to produce. This episode is brought to you by Weekend Student Adventures. Book with us and you can experience Europe like a local. WSA offers three and 10 day trips for students and budget travelers of any age to Europe's most exciting cities. Just show up at the hostel and our local guides will take it from there. They love showing off what makes their city special and our itineraries hit up all the top sites and get you off the beaten path to experience the best parts of the local culture. 
You can go caving in Budapest, learn to cook paella in Barcelona, and take the Lenin Wall in Prague. We offer weekend guided tours in Paris, Amsterdam, Rome, Barcelona, Krakow, Budapest, Edinburgh, and Prague. We also have longer trips available for Ireland, Italy, and Central Europe. You can learn more at wsaeurope.com. That is wsaeurope.com. So you've gone through, when you graduated from Notre Dame, am I correct, you started Smarter Shade, and then are you still involved with that, or did you sell that and move on to Keen Homes? What's what's your situation there? Yeah, yeah, a few years ago, um, left Smarter Shade, it's, it's still operating, um, it's now VG Glass, it's moved into production and commercialization of the technology, um, and I left to look for something to build next, uh, came back to New York. And met up with a couple of cool guys to build Keen Home, which uh, where we're making a smart vent. And tell us about uh, how you've gone from smart glass to smart vents. It sounds like uh, are you are you really into homes, interior design, or, and living spaces, or is that just kind of a, a coincidence? A little bit. Um, I, I do like green technology. I do like uh, things with a design element to them. Um, but uh, it's it's also just. It seemed like kind of the next market uh, to get into home automation and, and smart devices and robotics. Keen Home focuses on, on a smart vent, and what that is is in a typical house, you've got a thermostat that controls the heating for all the house, but that's kind of like having one light switch that turns all your lights on in every room at the same time. Uh, so when you add the ability to sense temperature and open and close the vent to every vent in every room, which is where the, that hot air is passing through, you basically create a virtual thermostat for each room of your house. So every room can be the right temperature. Rooms you're not using don't need to pay for heat. You can, while you're in bed sleeping at night for eight hours, shut down your kitchen and save energy there. But it's exactly the kind of thing that, you know, once you automate and turn into a robot, it becomes this seamless system. And that's that's where we're in the middle of building. We launched the product about a year ago and are kind of in that that path now of adding to it. One of the cool things about internet technologies like this and, and IoT devices is that they can get better and better over time. So we're, we have a product out there and this great hardware we've built, but now our software team is making it much more sophisticated and replete. And it can really build this robust automated system that's controlling temperature for you. Jeez, it's the home of the future, man. <laughs> what, what do you think is the next big thing? Obviously, we all know the Internet of Things is going to change the world. But uh, when that when it comes to where the rubber meets the road there, like what that actually means for people like you and me uh, who might be mm -hmm. shopping around for a house or an apartment, what are the things that are going to be implemented first and what are we going to see the soonest? Yeah, I think I think the the first device, the kind of proof of concept has been smart lighting. Everybody's looking at smart light bulbs and they're they're pretty simple, showy way of doing something cool. But I think where the systems become more powerful is integrations with things like Amazon Echo or Google Home. So Alexa being able to very uh, consistently pick up voice at a distance and understand what you want. But then more than that, because Amazon is so well tied in on infrastructure on the cloud side, the fact is uh, all of my lights in my house are automated. I can just say, Alexa, turn off the apartment and it will respond. And that's, that interface is so much more usable for the whole family, not just the tech heads. Uh, Don't say it too loud. You'll, you'll go in the dark. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I actually, <laughs> as I was saying it, I was like, 
no, this one's separate from the whole apartment, so I should be fine. <laughs> that does happen a lot. The, she'll respond to the commercials for her and things like that. It's, it's very sensitive. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. So w- one of the things I've seen is like smart refrigerators that can sense, all right, you're running low on mm-hmm. milk. You got to, you know, it can give you your grocery list. That's, um, you know, something I've not been dreaming of, but it would be nice to have somebody tell me exactly what I'm going to need every time I go. I think things like that get people's imaginations going. I think there's this push for use cases. Okay, we can bring things online. What devices should we bring online? Um, And things like smart refrigerators, you have to think a little bit more about how people tend to interact with those devices. So a fridge is a several hundred dollar device. Do I want to get rid of the fridge I have and buy a new one for a piece of technology that's in it that might be outmoded in two or three years when fridges tend to last seven or eight so I think which which problems are the most important to solve in the home needs to be considered and then how we solve them too. One of the reasons we went after um, heating and cooling is because uh, as opposed to like lighting or, or food, heating and cooling are 50% of your energy bill and you're, you're spending a lot. So our, our payback period, we're talking about saving people around $100 a month uh, in, in some cases in you know the hottest and coldest months around the country by saving them 10, 15%, you know, their house by closing off rooms they're not using. So things that are kind of these ugly, unthought of areas of the house, more built into the infrastructure of the house, have a different opportunity than things that are cool gadgets and maybe you show your friends. Um, but that's, that's where we think the real value in home automation is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's your engineer creeping in like, okay, we got all these right. things that we want to do. Let's look at the biggest immediate problem or challenge, even if it's not the flashiest, it'll make the biggest difference. So yeah. can, can you walk us through, Will, some of your experience in um, seeking funding? I mean, how has that gone? I'm sure that's not an easy experience. Any lessons there that you can share? Yeah, uh, <laughs> many scars there. Uh, so funding is for a lot of people kind of the main battle of uh, a startup. Um, but what you'll find is that once you get funded, that's sort of just the starter pistol. That's that's where you are. Now you're in a race and you have to make it to that next funding milestone. There's a lot of ways to do it. Smarter Shade, we uh, bootstrapped. We we actually didn't take on much, if, if any, real institutional funding. As I mentioned before, we spent about a year doing business plan competitions. Uh, ones like Rice and Mass Challenge are in the tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we, we were able to raise probably like two or $300,000 total. Then there's other great programs. If, if people are more science-headed or, or technology-headed, and you're, you're actually bringing a new innovation to market, um, the National Science Foundation's SBIR program is phenomenal. I think all in, we may have raised up to seven or 800000 over the course of two or three years from the NSF. And again, that's um, equity-free. Wow. Uh, they, they see their role as, yeah, they see the role as uh, venture capitalists where their return is tax dollars. So they want you to be successful. Uh, make a lot of money and pay a lot of taxes. And you said that's a grant? Yeah, it is. It's an excellent, an excellent um, path to to get funding. That's fascinating. And again, I think we can find a good point in here in that I think a lot of people have watched Shark Tank. A lot of people, you know, enjoy the the celebrity of it. But man, I think the most interesting and important part of business and entrepreneurship comes after the end of that show and actually getting right. things going. And so it's it's a little bit Hollywood. And, you know, ABC is looking for their good TV and these sharks are looking for a ridiculous deal. And the entrepreneurs just doing the best that they can. <laughs> Normally, <laughs> like usually just taken to pieces. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is that 
Shark Tank doesn't happen in the real world. You go and have meetings with individual investors, maybe a a community of investors, but that's fairly rare. And also, um, they're not colluding together against you either. You know, <laughs> right. so so it's interesting to compare Hollywood to the experiences that you've had. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've also had that experience. So Keen Home, uh, a little over a year ago, we were we were on Shark Tank, and we we did a deal with Robert Herjavec for. I think 750,000 for uh, 10 to 13% of the company. And at the time it was a record for a tech company. Um, and that was one heck of an experience. The whole, the whole thing of it, just as you're saying, the Hollywood of it, um, the, the exposure, just the scale of it was incredible. I will say though, that uh, just despite it being a show, uh, I do think that they do a good job of honest, honestly portraying what happens in the tank um, and a, a theatrical version of what happens in a typical venture capital boardroom. There's there's infighting. There's uh, people who over the course of several days, not in one, not in a couple of hours, but hear about a deal you're doing with somebody else, and they get FOMO, and then that gets them all, and like they start circling, and that idea of a feeding frenzy that really is how it how it goes down most times. So I think Shark Tank, although it is, you know, a TV show, it's a pretty educational one. (laughs) I think it's been uh, great to get just the the TV viewing public of of the U.S. kind of aware of of that. I mean, I have little cousins who can now calculate valuations based off of what (laughs) what teams are asking. (laughs) And, you know, that's it. That's a cool little math problem to work out. But it also gets their gears going and looking at the world in a in an entrepreneurial way. And like you, you said earlier, I identifying problems, understanding the markets and, and figuring out an idea or a product to, to help solve the problem. Yeah, that's right. And one of the other things I think Shark Tank does well is you see people pitch an idea and the sharks don't fall in love with just the idea. The next question they ask is usually, have you sold any? Or, you know, show me that the market loves your, loves your product idea. Show me product market fit. And they'll use different ways of figuring that out. But that's really what it's about is market proof. And I think that that's a very honest portrayal of the world of entrepreneurship. When you went on there, were you pre-revenue? Uh, we were, yeah. So we went on at a, a really pivotal moment. We had uh, intimation of a handshake deal with Lowe's to, to buy a large number of products. Um, but uh, we, we really didn't have a mass manufacturable product. So I think we were really there at exactly the right time when, when the finish line is in sight. But we still needed a, a, a bunch of cash to get you know as close as possible to to market and the nice thing about that when you're seeking funding is that you can without real numbers you can let the investor come up with any numbers that they want in their heads and then and then they'll invest uh, invest based on that rather than the real world numbers which aren't always uh gonna match yeah that's right um i think so i i uh, go back to notre dame every once in a while to to talk to our grad program the, the esteem program which is a hybrid uh, business and science um, masters. And one thing I like to do when I'm there is show the video of this, the Shark Tank pitch. Uh, my co-founder, Naeem, is an excellent, <laughs> excellent um, uh, negotiator. And I, what I do is I go through the video kind of one exchange at a time and show what's happening here, like how the valuation is being constructed in their head and how Naeem is getting the sharks to negotiate against themselves to change the value. And one of the things that he does there is he, he gets that something that I think people are often confused about in startup valuation. People always ask, you know, how do you come at the number that a startup is worth? And the answer isn't, oh, you have two patents, those are a million dollars a piece and four employees and blah, blah, blah. The answer is what people are willing to pay. And it's, it's a market in which there are just a couple of buyers, but only one seller. So in some ways, it's kind of like 
less and less of a, a, a sale at a store and more like a ransom for a kidnapping. Like you only have a handful <laughs> of people who are willing to pay and there's only one person negotiating with. So there's still negotiation. But the <laughs> the the truth of that situation is often that there's a lot of heuristics people use like, well, if I did a round of funding here, my if my uh, investors are not going to be happy with less than this, so we're not going to have a down round. I'm not going to change the value to go down. And knowing that, you can kind of stand your ground. And we, we saw Naeem do that where he said, I'm not going to have a down round. Um, and the Sharks just started offering higher and higher numbers. Uh, just there was, there was, They wanted to do the deal, and we just were not going to take under a certain number. It really helps to have a complete entrepreneurial team as well. It sounds like he's really good on the business right. side, and you have your engineering background, you have your design background. Did that happen naturally for you? Because for me, that's been the one of the most challenging things is to to find the right people. Not only that, but put them in the right role as well. You could have the best creative person, Absolutely. but if you put them into operations, I mean, that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, that's a really good point. As you're saying or intimating there, it is absolutely the most important thing a business can do. I think I've, I've said a couple of times, the role of a CEO is to hire good people and not run out of money. That's really about it. Like setting the vision to some degree. It's sort of a founding team thing. Here's where we want to be. Here's your role in it. And uh, here's the money so that you can get there. And that's about it. So that aspect of finding good people is so intensely hard. That's why CEOs get paid the big bucks. Um, and more than that, like understanding those team dynamics, sometimes you can have somebody in the right role who's good with somebody else in an overlapping role and that dynamic doesn't work. Uh, so I think part of that is networking. I've found the best resources for people are always recommendations. They, they, it's not from job postings or listings or people who are, who are looking. It's from conversations that I've had after hours podcasts for people, you know, follow up and reach up to each other, reach out to each other and, and get talking and have productive conversations. It's such an organic process of meeting someone and finding a, uh, a kinship and an energy and a chemistry that works together that it's, it's really difficult to put into words. But, but more than that, I would say if you don't, if the startup isn't, isn't inevitable based on the relationship that you have, then you got to keep looking and, and keep finding different fits between team members. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have a magic bullet solution for that. It's it's just the hardest part yeah. about building something. That's, you know, part of the, the joys and pains of uh, entrepreneurship, isn't it? That's right. Well, speaking of networking, Will, where can we look up uh, Keen Homes and where can we find more information about you? Sure. So um, Keen Home is at keenhome.io. Um, and you can find more information about me. Uh, my, my Twitter handle is WMCLeod, W-M-C-L-E-O-D. Um, and I'm actually in the midst of almost done writing a book on, on the topic of how you build things for startups. What, how do you actually make physical products in the world? It's called um, Mechanical Engineering for Hackers, and it's an O'Reilly book, and you can find it on the O'Reilly site. Mechanical Engineering for Hackers is a guide from concept to mass manufacturing for people who want to kickstart something or low-volume, medium-volume manufacturing, and that's it's everything from sketching, concepting to material science, just a little bit into plastic and metals and what, what materials to use and where and injection molding and design for manufacturing and how to build snap hooks and how to build these little features into a product. Um, and then how to go to China, how to, how to do things in, in mass production and how to do things at the volumes you shouldn't be doing like a, a thousand, which you, we tend to see people in Kickstarter doing these days. So it's, it's really <laughs> that whole very hands-on practical how to get it done. Uh, much more than a, a textbook for the area. 
I hear you. Wow, I'll, I'll definitely have to check that out. Let me know when that drops because I'd love a copy. Thank you so much for joining me, man. We will wrap up here. It's Will McLeod of Keen Home. I know I've said homes a couple times, but it's keenhome.io. Uh, will, thanks so much for joining me, man. Thanks so much, Andy. It was a great talk. Thanks again for listening. Find all show details, links, and tips at andysteves.com. You can connect with WSA Europe, Andy's tour company, at WSA Europe on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We'll see you next time. Happy travels.